Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, March 15th, 2016, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-host for the evening, Anastasia. Lavendar is in Arkansas this evening, getting ready for this weekend's Starseed Gathering. As the May Pleiadian lineup approaches, we only have four spots left for the ninth Starseed Crystal Quest to Arkansas, May 15th through the 21st. This is a soul group reunion, and the group is identified by having at least one of these six star markings, either natal or progressed, 25, 26, or 27 degrees in Taurus, Scorpio, Aquarius, Leo, Capricorn, and Cancer. If you feel the call of the crystals and aren't sure if you have these markings, I'd be happy to take a quick look at your charts and let you know. Just send me your complete birth info with the date, the exact time, the place, and your current location, and write to crystals, that's plural, crystals at starseedhotline.com. Well, this week, Starseed Radio Academy celebrates six years on the air. Back in 2010, we first aired several episodes from Lavendar's Astonishing Journals, from her early childhood to the big event, which took place in the desert at Giant Rock with George Van Tassel, a well-known E.T. contactee. He told her in 1977 that when Giant Rock cracks, it would be her signal to start releasing the light information that she would gather over the coming 25 years through her assignments with the Pleiadians as a contactee herself along with the training she received from George in 1977. Her life's work was meant for the children who were born after 1980, for when they came of age, they would need this information for the missions they carried. Even though she has empowered and trained many high-profile people, including Oscar-winning celebrities and politicians, her work has always been for the benefit of countless starseeds across the planet, so together we can help raise the consciousness on Earth. This recording this evening is her feature story that was originally aired in September of 2010. We've had many reports of physical reactions to this story as certain things may get activated, so please do not listen to this one while you're driving. At the top of the show, it's the Starseed News with Anastasia, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And because tonight's presentation is pre-recorded and Lavendar isn't here, there won't be an opportunity for call-in questions this evening, but we still want to thank Fiona and Vanya for being here with us. If you'd like to chat with like-minded people, we have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and we appreciate Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download any show in our archives on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page. Just look for the cloud with an arrow on it. We'd appreciate your support of our show, and you can do that by clicking follow on our show page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notices so you'll know what's coming up. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 
The Stage 1 starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart. And the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. If you have a birthday coming up, don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And then if you want an interpretation of that chart, make sure you order it at least two or three months ahead of your birthday to make sure that you get it in before your 10 hours starts. So now this evening, I would like to introduce my co-host, Anastasia. Hello, Anastasia. Well, good evening, Ariel. Hello. Good evening, Starseed listeners. Great to be with you. We are now in daylight savings time, and it is lighter, longer. I really do like that. Love the sunshine. Very warm (laughs) where I am today, and uh, we're going to cover a little bit about interesting earth changes and things that have been going on in our newscast, but we're going to start by talking about the sun. Now, I had never heard this term before. How long, Ariel, have I been doing the news? Long time. Yeah. Well, according, yes, according to spaceweather.com, their headline says, CIR hits Earth and sparks auroras. Well, what is a CIR, I said to myself, and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> During the late hours of March 14th, a co-rotating interaction region, a CIR, hit Earth's magnetic field, sparking bright auroras around the Arctic Circle. Well, CIRs, apparently, are transition zones between slow and fast-moving solar wind streams. Solar wind plasma piles up in these regions, producing density gradients and shock waves that tend to ignite auroras when they strike Earth's magnetic field. So there you have it, a CIR. Well, I want to talk about earth changes in the month of February. I'm going to try to do this every month, I won't promise, but I do kind of want to give you a brief summary of what has occurred in earth changes in the previous month. So we're going to talk a little bit about February earth changes tonight. There were a lot of sinkholes in February in Moscow, in Ohio, in Peru, in Texas, all over the globe, big sinkholes, some of them opening up, swallowing whole cars and buses where people had to try to climb out uh, from their vehicles. We had in February a 6.4 earthquake in Taiwan. And in the South Atlantic Ocean, do you all know they had the largest meteor impact since Chelyabinsk? Huge impact. And at the same time, uh, a meteor struck in India that killed one person. Now, this is the first time that anyone has been killed by a meteorite in modern-day history, in modern-day recorded history. A meteor hit Copenhagen, Denmark, on the same day, and there were huge fireballs reported over Brazil, California, Texas, southeastern France, northern Italy, northern Morocco, Spain, and Portugal. We had the Zimbabwe drought disaster in February, and in February, Bolivia's vanishing Lake Popo, fully evaporated. In Death Valley last month, there was a rare super bloom of wildflowers. And guess what happened in the South American region? Snow fell again in Guatemala. The first time in history that snow has ever fallen in Guatemala was 2013. But snow also fell in Costa Rica, which is just 10 degrees north of the equator for the first time in recorded history. 
There was mm. also a large earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand, a 5.9, following on the heels of that major earthquake from which that region has not yet recovered. And if you'll all remember, there was a deep freeze in the northeast United States last month, way below zero, where we had a heat wave in the southwest. There was a methane gas leak in the Condamine River in Australia, and shrieking sky sounds along with strange sky sounds heard in Connecticut, Canada, and Oregon. There's been a great deal of dead marine life and tens of thousands of sharks that migrated along the Florida coast last month. Nobody knew why, but it was not safe to go into the water. In Michigan last month, we had black tar fall from the sky, and there was a massive explosion centered from the sky. They say it originated from the sky, an explosion. It sounded like thunder. It destroyed a house in England, killing one man. I might say that the houses on each side of this dwelling that was destroyed were uninjured. Isn't that amazing? Photos of it on the Internet are jaw-dropping. There was a pipeline rupture in Peru that is still, I think, still, perhaps, spilling oil into the Amazonian rivers. We had a Category 5 cyclone hit Fuji, and millions of beetles have washed ashore in Argentina in February. Millions upon millions of beetles. And as far as volcanic activity, February saw the Cinnabung volcano erupting twice in one day. The Motombo and Teleka volcanoes erupted within two hours of each other in Nicaragua. The Tungahura volcano erupted in Ecuador, and the Sacajura volcano also erupted in February. We had the Santiago volcano erupting in Guatemala, and the Soptupan volcano erupted in Indonesia. It was a very active month in February across the planet for natural events. So now fast forward into, Feb- into March, and here we go. Continuing on with the sounds from the sky, weird trumpet sounds have been heard in Fort McMurray, Alberta. And a strong tremor has struck off Atka Island in southwest Alaska. This earthquake had a preliminary magnitude of 6.4. Now, this is part of the Aleutian Islands in southwest Alaska, and no tsunami alerts were issued. This occurred on Saturday. There's been flooding in Sao Paulo. It's left 70, uh, excuse me, 21 people dead, and Latin America's largest city has been paralyzed by that. Historic floods have swamped the southern U.S. You've all heard about that on our local news. There were submerged roadways, backed-up sewers, stalled cars, flooded homes. You, you all saw those dramatic pictures on television, I'm sure. Uh, this historic flooded has been uh, flooding has been in, in, inundating the region, and that has just occurred in recent days. Now, in Mexico, an odd thing has occurred. A very mysterious sea creature has washed up on a Mexican beach. The photographs of it on the Internet are boggling. It really looks like one of those old 1950 movies, uh, horror movies uh, called The Blob or such thing. This is the mystery sea creature that is baffling experts. They don't know what it is. It's about 13 feet long. It was found uh, near Acapulco. Um, People have taken photographs of it. Nobody knows what it is. And what makes it relevant to our newscast is that these deep-sea creatures keep surfacing uh, onto the beaches where they shouldn't be. We wonder what is going on at the seabed level to drive these creatures up to the surface of the water. And Costa Rica's, uh, uh, Costa Rica's Rincon 
volcano is now erupting as well. It is ejecting vapor and ash. Um, apparently, the volcanic activity in that region has been low in the last 15 years, but monitoring equipment has spotted increases of activity, and now it has begun to erupt uh, vapor and ash. And more about rare deep-sea creatures. The long-nosed chimera. Have any of you heard about that? Well, one was <laughs> caught off of Newfoundland. Now, in Greek mythology, the stories about the chimera, which they used to say was a monstrous fire or breathing dragon, was a goat and snake hybrid. And uh, lots of myths about that creature was recently found off the coast of Newfoundland. And again, this is another fish that should not be uh, on the surface of the water. They are uh, estimated to be uh, descended from sharks about 400 million years ago. A lot of these deep-sea creatures are very, very prehistoric, and this is just one of them. And we've had some more whale beachings. Uh, the more recent ones have occurred at Silver Strand State Beach in California. It was a dead humpback whale, and there was a rare whale, rare whales that have been stranded on the beach in New, in New Zealand as well. We've had some tornadoes hit Texas. Actually, there were three EF1s that hit North Texas in a 24-hour period. We've had some meteor spottings as well, yet again. A bright meteor has uh, flashed over the Black Sea near the Ukraine. And in Yellowstone National Park, there was a bright fireball that was captured on camera. And also uh, some meteors sighted in Missouri. So if any of you have seen those, I'd like to hear from you. We're in a period of high meteor activity. And so as we can see, there's a lot going on. I wanted to share our concluding story with you tonight. They have discovered something so fascinating, and I wish I could put this up on a slideshow for you. It is a million-year-old complex of underground man-made structures. Now, most archaeologists and historians believe that human civilization emerged some 10 to 12,000 years ago. Yet many researchers have drawn attention to artifacts and various other evidence of very advanced civilizations long before this, even millions of years earlier. Now, some of the, among these researchers is a, a Russian geologist who's a director of their National uh, Science Research Center at Moscow's University of Ecology. Now, what this man has discovered is an ancient underground structures that exist across the Mediterranean. And he's identified similarities between these structures that leads him to believe these sites were once connected culturally. Furthermore, the weathering of these structures and their material composition as well as the geological features and historic changes in the regions, lead him to believe that they were built by highly advanced civilizations hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. You really need to try to check that out if you get a chance to research this on the Internet. Now, archaeologists are working in the region. Uh, they, they normally date the sites by looking at the settlements located uh, nearby. But the settlements that we're talking about tonight were simply built on pre-existing historic, uh, prehistoric uh, settlements. Uh, they say that they are much older than the ruins of the Canaanite, Philistine, Hebraic, Roman, Byzantine, and other cities and settlements that were placed on and around it. 
So there we go. We're finding that, um, wow, history is being modified all the time. And you know that's probably <laughs> not going to get put into the textbooks. But it's very, very important. And what's interesting about these pictures that they have posted, guys, is that they're very beehive-like in appearance. And yet, the um, what do I call that? The segments of the structure, the segments within, within the structure, and many of these look to be underground, by the way, are not uh, shaped like a honeycomb, but rather they're shaped exactly like triangles. They're triangles in a honeycomb pattern, a honeycomb formation, dug into the rock walls that have obviously been smoothed. So very interesting findings and uh, something to, to be aware of as we watch what unfolds in the archaeological development. Certainly, uh, we have a long history that science has not, science and history has not confided in us. So that's uh, that's what's going on out there. Filled you up with a lot of stuff and did it pretty fast. <laughs> I want to make sure we've got time for this wonderful uh, replay of Lavendar's experiences. That's going to be very good to listen to again. But I'm looking forward to next week's Starseed News. So I'll just turn it back over to you right now, Ariel. Okay, well, thanks so much, Anastasia, for the Starseed News. And My pleasure. Um, as, you're quite welcome. In in the um, intro, um, I mentioned that we had originally aired this in 2010, and since then we've had um, about, oh, 600,000 listens to our show. And, and I think that maybe some people um, have not heard this yet, and other people, it may be so long since you heard it that it might seem like new again. So this is has been always our featured story, and it is the the big event that really shaped Lavendar's um, future destiny and actually led her to be part of um, Starseed Radio Academy and Starseed Hotline, which was all uh, based on her work over the past 30-odd years. So, without uh, further ado, I give you Lavendar's Crack Between the Worlds. Crack Between the Worlds, read by Lavendar. This is a document that has been in the making for a very long time. Most of this information has been kept in a bank vault for over 30 years. I've decided to release this story at this time because now is the time. On March 4, 2000, I discovered on the Sightings.com webpage a story about an event that shook my soul to its foundation. Giant Rock, a huge boulder sitting in the area of Landers, California, had suddenly split open, exposing a gleaming white granite interior. Giant Rock had long been a sacred site for UFO researchers, along with Native American lore. The description of the splitting of the rock is presented in an article by James Twyman, author of Emissary of Light and Secret of the Beloved Disciple. His website, www.jamestwyman.com, and the news article can be found from the High Desert Star newspaper dated Wednesday, February 23, 2000. So why did the news of the splitting of Giant Rock have such an effect on me? 
because I've been holding a series of stories for several years concerning light information from ETs that are influencing our planet. Somehow, I have been given the insight to journal some events that started to take place at Giant Rock starting back in 1976. These events were witnessed by several people. Some are living while others have crossed over. As I looked at the before and after pictures of Giant Rock, well, the before picture I knew so well, the, the after picture was so startling, it was a shock to my system. I knew that it was a signal to me. Seeing the cracked rock created in my being a release of light information that I'd been holding for over 25 years. It seemed that every file in my brain's computer wanted to download, and I kept saying, oh, not now. It isn't time. I just can't do this now. I instantly knew that I had to put up my visible hands to my head as though I could stop this. I kept chanting, no, 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 as though I, I had any power over memories of this magnitude. It was at that moment that I felt an outside presence enter the room, and a calming came over me. This presence was not visible, and yet I was aware that it was there. The struggle with the filing system in my head seemed to be closed off. All at once, I knew that within 24 hours, I'd be released to write this story. Sacred time and space would be for provided for me. I would simply sit down properly and release through the keyboard of my computer what I could remember or what I'd be allowed to remember. For days now, it had seemed that information about Giant Rock was about to surface. The day that the rock actually split was on a Monday, February 21st, 2000. My mother had a statement to me that certainly got my attention. At the time of this writing, my mother was 85 years old and was in a wheelchair. I had taken some of her artwork out and noticed that she had about 18 canvases that were unfinished and not signed. I asked her if she'd signed the pictures as I felt that her signature should be on them. She replied that she would not sign a picture until it was finished. I promised her that if I would take art lessons and learn some of her techniques that perhaps I could finish some of her paintings. She agreed and proceeded to tell me about each picture and what needed to be done to finish it. When I came to a painting that was of the sand dunes and mysterious blue and pink sky, I blurted out, Oh, this can be a picture of me at Giant Rock with George Van Tassel. My mother squinted her eyes with that little leprechaun look and said, Yes, and you haven't finished doing what you said you were going to do. And I said, Well, I think I've done about 25%. And she said, when are you going to do the rest of the story? And I said, I don't know. Now, the thing that amazed me about her statement was that I couldn't remember telling her anything about my promise to George Van Tassel. I looked at the painting of the sand dunes, and I could see, just as though it were yesterday, George walking toward the dunes and me walking back to the house where he lived. I also remembered that it was the last time that we had a three-hour one-to-one talk. In fact, I can now say with certainty that it was the last time I saw the true essence of George Van Tassel, period. 
The vision of me walking towards the house and not looking back seemed to freeze frame in my brain, and all at once I said, Mother, I know what I will paint, a man walking in one direction and a woman walking towards us. And she said, You never will. I mean, never learn to draw people and paint them. And with that, she just totally dismissed the painting, and a mother-daughter shutdown had occurred, and... Well, you know the kind of electromagnetic psychic pulses that happen with certain genie bloodlines. And my mother was a genie, and she was certainly out of her bottle. I put the canvas down on the floor, and as I placed it, a series of pictures started flashing in my head. They were of the day that George took me for a walk and gave me information about ETs, walk-ins, mind control, E.T. government experiments, advanced technology, and spiritual insight. He clearly defined his E.T. source and from his perspective clues of their experiments. He turned to me and in his gentle voice said, One day you will need to release this light information to the world and you will know the right time because the signal will come when giant rock cracks. This will signify a communication line that represents the crack between the worlds. When this happens, then that will be your signal to release your light information, but with a lot of discernment. I asked him what he meant by when giant rock cracks, and he went into great explanation about this information concerning the crack between the worlds, and said that a demonstration and in unison with other dimensions would be lightning from the sky and the boulder would just simply crack open. He said it wouldn't happen for a long time and that I shouldn't concern myself with it now, but that I was only to remember it when giant rock would crack. He said that I would write it down and pass it on to the next seven generations of people to come. And I asked him, why so long a time? And he said, the light information that I'm going to give to you will not be understood by many until then. But there will be those that will relate to this, and it is for them that you must pass this life information on. As we walked through the sand dunes, he related information about time travel, rejuvenation, ET technologies, walk-ins, and dimensional interconnectedness that occurred with certain codings and timings. He was able to transfer this light information in three hours, but it would take me 25 years to live it, decode it, and then translated into story form. At that time, I was 33 years old and just starting on my spiritual journey into something I have referred to as Beyond Z. Through these years, I've come to know and understand some of the information that George gave me that day. Some I have already written about, while other aspects have been experienced but not yet journaled. Now that the rock has cracked open, it seems to signal to me that perhaps it is time to release the information about the stories of Giant Rock, George and Doris Van Tassel, and the visitations of the ETs. I could hear him saying this as clearly as though it were yesterday. And I said to myself, oh, not now. This isn't the time as I push the memories away. As part of this coordinated coincidence, a few days later, I received a phone call from Ariel telling me 
that she had been in contact with a man who had been to Giant Rock and had had many visits with Doris Van Tassel, George's second wife. I thought this seemed odd, especially after my recent experience with my mother and the sand dunes painting. As Ariel's talked, I started flashing again on a series of events that had taken place at Giant Rock. Once again, I said, not now, this isn't the time, as I continued to push even further back my memories, as they were coming through a place that I call the crack between the worlds. It was all that I could do just to listen to her explaining her relationship with her new friend. I was experiencing a series of flashing pictures and trying to listen to her at the same time. Pretty soon... I had to turn my screen off and just go blank. Sometimes this is the only way that I can hold my sanity together. I was on automatic pilot now and knew it. I also knew that something was approaching from the crack between the worlds, and the next time I didn't know if I could stop the visions with a simple blank screen. Through the years I had learned the cadence and the deliverance system from the other where and it seems as though they use it in a one, two, three punch system just before they knock me out with sacred data or before they release me to download information. I have never been able to discern whether it is incoming or outgoing or both being dyslexic. I guess it doesn't matter. Before I talk about my walk with George and the sand dunes, I should mention what happened to me on February seventh, 1977. It all started with my romantic fling with a young man from Alaska who owned a helicopter company. I was truly smitten, and his physical sexual proudness kept my head spinning. On New Year's Eve, we were drinking Jack Daniels and really partying on the Strip in Las Vegas. At the moment of midnight, he took me in his helicopter and we buzzed the Strip and flew back to the airport. How we escaped the police and death is beyond me. He went home with me that night and moved into my apartment. The next day, I discovered that my favorite wristwatch with tiny diamonds was missing. My father had given me this wristwatch for my high school graduation, and it was very special to me. I retraced my steps and toured Ever Casino, but to no avail. I was simply devastated and felt a part of me was truly missing. We spent all of January in romantic bliss until one night while dancing at the Mount Charleston Lodge, I became overwhelmed with a strong feeling that he was going to leave me for my best friend Diana. It was so strong that I fled the dance floor and immediately went home. He tried to convince me that this would never happen, that he truly detested Diana. The next day, I tried to shake this vision, but I couldn't. He brought me flowers, we had a romantic dinner, then went downtown to see a movie. When we got home, I had such a foreboding that I sat down with a bottle of Jack Daniels and drank most of it. When I went into the bedroom, I heard a voice tell me to look at him sleeping and remember it, for it would be the last time he would spend the night there. I was drunk and thought I was hearing things, but I did remember it. The next morning, the voice started speaking inside my head again, saying things like, Watch him get dressed. Watch him eat breakfast. Now watch him walk out the door, for he will not be back. You will not ever see him again. 
I heard this, but didn't want to believe it. Sure enough. That night, Diana called me to tell me he was over at her house. They stayed in bed for two weeks, then got married. He never came back for his clothes, and I never saw him again. He vanished out of my life. I was out of my mind with grief. I canceled all my appointments and wouldn't leave my apartment until I received a telephone call from Doris Van Tassel from Giant Rock. She asked me if I would come immediately to see her. She said it was urgent. I had a girlfriend named Sally that had her own airplane, so she flew me down there. There was a landing strip at Giant Rock as it was used to be it used to be an airport. When I got out of the plane, there were stores, thin, petite, white pixie hair with arms waiting to greet me. As she hugged me, I felt a sense of release from my heartbreak, almost like it fading from my mind. She grabbed Sally and said, Lavender needs to be alone so that she can sit inside the room below Giant Rock by herself. She needs some clarity. And with that, they drove off to the house, which was about a mile away. I was stunned, and yet I obeyed and went down the stairs to the room under the rock. This room had only one door in or out. I was there several minutes. When I started to climb the stairs to leave, I heard a voice behind me. When I turned around, there was a dark-haired man who had, well, he was bald on top. He looked like he'd put on a really bad hairpiece because, well, the hairpiece didn't look real, and there was this, this bald spot. It was just confusing. I noticed that his skin had no pores, and he looked bronze like someone had just chiseled him out of a statue. His face was quite handsome. He reminded me of a cross between actors John Saxon and John Gavin. He was taller than me, and yet I felt the same size when in his presence. His eyes, what can I say, did make any sense. They were gold and blue, then green and black, then a rainbow of colors that aren't even in our spectrum. How do I describe a color with no reference point? Startled, I said, well, who are you and what do you want of me? And the next thing that happened was so freaky that it blanked my mind where I couldn't hear any words come from him. All I remember was that he motioned for me to open my hand, and when I did, I looked down, and in my hand there was my lost wristwatch. As he closed my hand and held it, he filled me with so much light that my five senses went into a blur. I couldn't see, hear, or smell. I was just totally overwhelmed. I couldn't even tell if I shut my eyes or not. The only thing I could remember after that was that he telepathically told me that I would not be able to convey to anyone about this transfer of light information until I had experienced it by living it. He told me, you are the demonstration and experiment of light information, and because of this, many adventures will be forthcoming, and you are to journal them, hold them in sacred space, until such a time as light information demonstrations will be embraced by those of like mind. If you try to tell anyone of this before the time, they will be erased of this knowledge and not be able to keep it nor ever tell anyone about it. You will be alone with this, and there will be those of us that will come throughout your life to present different levels of light information that opens doors of other realities, dimensions, 
and direct contact with those of us of extraterrestrial heritage, not of Earth. You will be loaned out to different species for short durations in order to journal their evolutionary contributions to Earth. During this time, you will be closely monitored through your double pineal and by crystal implants that we will give you. Through this series of adventure, you will go beyond the limb. This will be a turning point. And then terms of endearment. You will remember these phrases as they will become codes that will be released some of your adventures. These were the names of movies of an actress that I would empower later. Then he placed his hands on my head and I saw pictures of different vistas of trees and limbs and the environmental structure. Around these trees were images of people who looked like me. Dark hair, blue eyes. I saw movie stars. First was Natalie Wood, then Elizabeth Taylor. In the distance were Joan Collins, Barbara Parkins, Susan St. James, Susan Plachette, Elizabeth Ashley, and then the authors Jacqueline Suzanne and Anne Wren. Then off to one side I saw male figures that were famous, Burt Reynolds, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and Dennis Weaver, all of whom I met and had interaction with, some more than others. I don't have any memory of seeing Shirley MacLaine. After all the time we spent together and the joint experiments that were conducted by ETs, one would think that she might have been predominant in the pictures, but she wasn't. The only reasonable explanation for this is that that ever made sense was that Natalie Wood held a certain kind of evolutionary code to be played out, but she was taken out before she could finish it. Shirley was next in line to continue a certain kind of spiritual awakening for humanity. In my chapter on Shirley, this is explained in detail. Then I saw Ronald Reagan, Anwar Sadat, Gorbachev, Jerry Brown, Donald Trump, and then a stream of faces I could not identify which some of them showed up in my life in the next 25 years. Then I seemed to be going back in time and I saw all the founding fathers of America and I knew them by name. Then the scene changed and I saw a map with the names Athens, Greece, Cairo, Egypt, Israel, Aruba, Yucatan, Hawaii, Sedona, Flagstaff, Santa Fe, Rio Doso, Washington, D.C., and two faces I didn't know at the time. I saw me on several occasions at the White House surrounded by people that I would come to know later. Congressional and Senate members and presidential hopefuls became a collage of characters parading through my life. It became obvious to me that ETs were intertwined in the political arena. And it became really obvious to me recently with Egypt. Then I saw a group of fast-moving slides on the globe. Then a map of 33 places around the globe. He took his finger and pointed to every one of them, and then he would press on my forehead after each touch of the map. He said that I was to refer to these as the 33 GM PowerPoints of Crystal Grid System Activation. It would be from here that evolutionary planning would take place and would be monitored throughout the ages as it has been designed that way 
from the beginning of the planet's history. I witnessed the activation of crystal ley lines and grid points by crystalline ET computers that were buried under the ground. A lot of guardians were also at these sites, and the indigenous tribes at each location found a bloodline that was worthy of stewardship. This was usually passed down through seven generations and interlocking with other ET bloodline experiments that would sometimes be interchanged with 14 generation experiments. So much of this information is still surfacing from my memory banks and is released a little at a time depending on who needs to know it kind of thing. Pictures were flashing so fast that I could remember only a small percentage of the information. I was shown how astrology and astronomy work together in a galactic system based on the 12 time zone system with certain degrees indicating specific galactic codes used by different species. It was through these pictures that the discovery of star markings was introduced to my filing system but wouldn't surface for many years. Bloodlines were a big part of this information as I saw an entire genetic system that is tracked by ETs through blood plus planetary timing based on certain planetary equations. It would be from here that he said that I could excel in matters of galactic proportions because this would reveal how ET species help to evolve a planet both negatively and positively. After this series of movies, then he imparted a brief statement that I didn't understand for many, many years to come. He silently imparted the phrase, You are and have always been the light information. Come now, come later, but you're coming with the adventures suited for a scribe. You must live this first. We will be on the standby every day of your counting. Remember, you belong to no man. You belong to us. You belong to no man. You belong to us. Then he embraced me, had me breathe with him, and seemed to walk straight through me, and then just vanished. I looked down at my wristwatch, and it was running backwards, and that is when I totally collapsed. When I woke up, I was resting on the stairs. I felt like I must be having a nervous breakdown. I thought, I have to give up drinking Jack Daniels. It's causing my mind to go crazy. Then I realized that Doris had called me down to Giant Rock just for this experience. How else could I explain the wristwatch in my hand, which had now started running forward, but was off by two hours? Over the years, I've tried to play this out in my mind and attempt to remember the rest of what he showed me. I, I have only been able to put bits and pieces of it together, however, as my life would take different turns. I would see his face and somehow knew that he had foreseen or maybe even directed each adventure. Doris came to get me and take me back to the house for body treatment and dinner. Then Sally and I flew back to Las Vegas in her twin cub airplane. I was changed somehow for the ache in my heart was gone and I could no longer remember his name. The one I was so devastated over earlier this would be the first of many romantic erasures to come in my life and then be erased out of my life. Whenever I would venture off my soul mission with a man, then the man would be erased. I mean erased. 
I had no memory of what he looked or felt like, only a shadow memory that he'd been part of my life. It takes a certain kind of male energy to even be in my presence, let alone my everyday life. Not many can handle the galactic pressures that accompany my experiment on the planet. I used to explain this away because later in life I was struck three times by lightning and I attributed it to that, but after the giant rock experience I knew that ET technology was at work and somehow it kept my little feet on the path of my future galactic experiences. So here's the story about my walk with George Van Tassel at the sand dunes around Giant Rock. This particular event happened about a month before George passed away. George and his wife Doris had called me to come visit them on this particular weekend. They had invited a select group of people to come and view some important documents that had been put in their care and these documents were called the Wadi Scrolls. These were scrolls that were found in the Qumran Caves close to where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. A man named Wadi had found them and had taken them to Stanford University where they had been scrutinized and authenticated for seven years. The Van Tassels felt that they wanted witnesses for the reading of this material and they asked me, Harvey Brevere, a healer, and a Jewish couple, uh, I can only remember his name, Reuben, I can't pull their names right now, okay, to bear witness to the reading of these scrolls. They had also expressed to us that they felt that our abilities to track and discern would help them in deciding the fate of these important documents. A man named Leo had recently had a stroke and had given these scrolls to George because he felt that he wouldn't live much longer. George, in turn, entrusted this information to the four of us. We took turns reading this material, which had been carbon dated as being written during the time of Jesus the Christ. There were letters from Claudius, Pontius Pilate, and Nicodemus, both Marys and several other biblical characters. This translation from Essenes to English was written by several professors at Stanford University. We started reading the scrolls in the afternoon and we read late into the night. Each of us took turns reading out loud. We take breaks to discuss what we had read, but mostly we'd end up crying because of the depth of the material. The emotions this brought up in us was overwhelming. The Jewish couple gave their viewpoint based on their religion. We needed to see through their eyes on how their ancestors would view this particular point of history. By 2 a.m., I suggested that we stop reading and try to get some sleep. What a joke! We all went to our bedrooms, but who could sleep? We had just read material that could change the course of religious history. What would happen if this material were released and if people were allowed to believe it? We were too stun-gunned to sleep. All of us lay looking at the ceiling for hours. Around 4 a.m., a bright blue light flooded all of our rooms as though we needed anything else to deal with. We were frozen in time for about two hours. In truth, we probably experienced some missing time. At about 6 a.m., when I could move my body, I decided we all needed some breakfast. 
I went into overdrive and cooked bacon and sausage and eggs and pancakes and biscuits and potatoes and corn on the cob and plenty of coffee. This was the outlet that I needed at the moment to cook my full head off. Around 7.30 a.m. we gathered again to eat this feast prepared from the twilight zone and started discussing what we had read the day and the night before. Just as we were finishing breakfast, there was a knock on the door. There was a woman with a man in the wheelchair. It was Leo, the man that had given George the Wadi Scrolls. He said that he had been awakened in the middle of the night and was told by a voice to get up, get dressed, and drive to Giant Rock to see George immediately because something of importance was happening. He said the voice was so persuasive that he actually was without pain when he went to dress and was free of it as he spoke. I remembered Harvey Brevere kneeling down to speak to Leo and after a few moments noticed that they both were in tears discussing the Wadi Scrolls. It was a very touching moment and one that I am not going to forget for a very long time. We all sat around the round table and started reading the scrolls out loud again except Leo who only listened as the stroke had taken his speech. We had done about an hour of reading when there was a knock on the door and I got up and answered and there standing tall was a young Australian man speaking with an Aussie accent. Hi, my name is Donovan Joyce and I have written a book called The Jesus Scrolls. I know this must seem odd, but I was told by my guides to get on an airplane and fly from Australia to L.A., then rent a car and drive to the desert past Palm Springs to a place called Giant Rock. And once I got here, I'd know what to do. I glanced down by the door and on a table was a copy of his book, The Jesus Scrolls by Donovan Joyce. Someone had sent it to Doris just a few days earlier and she hadn't had time to even pick it up, much less read it. With not a skip of a beat, I immediately invited him in and introduced him to the group and of course we had another round of tears. It was starting to be apparent that the force was at work and that two individuals had been instructed by voice to come to where we were sitting, sitting in a double white house trailer, reading from A, manuscript given by Leo, who now had joined us, and B, another author with some very similar information, being driven by voice to come to the desert by way of Australia? What? Does this sound like the Twilight Zone? Yes, because it was. It's a perfect demonstration of when information flows from the crack between the worlds. We finished reading the final chapter around 2 p.m. It was at that point that George closed the manuscript, looked deep within our eyes, and said the following. Lavendar, Harvey Bevere, he named the Jewish couple. I called you here because I trust you, not only do I trust you, but also I trust your soul and your records. And I want you to tell me the truth about what I should do with this manuscript. Don't hold anything back. Just tell me how it is. And he turned to me and he said, Well, Miss Bowen Arrow, let me hear it from you first. Well, at first I was shocked that he called on me, but then I settled into the fact, and without hesitation I just blurted out, George, 
if you try to publish this now, they'll just kill you. The Catholic Church alone will have hit men ready to take you out. And anyone that threatens their hold on power, well, in influence of the church, well, this isn't just the Catholic Church, not to mention the Baptist and Methodist and Church of Christ. And Just think about all the other religions, what they're going to do. All of Christianity is based on the fact that Jesus died for their sins. And there's great guilt over this, and it's used by every religion in order to control the people. The release of this manuscript would jeopardize too many people and too much power. My vote is to put it away in a vault under strict instructions not to be released until the world can handle through consciousness such a statement of fact. I spoke with a clarity that even surprised me, although when I think about it now some years later it was and is very clear why this manuscript or even other manuscripts like it would either be destroyed or kept under lock and key and away from the masses. Now can you imagine how I must have felt being raised a Baptist reading this manuscript? This went against everything that I ever had been taught about the Bible or religion. Although I was studying astrology and was practicing the art of being a mystic, I still had certain beliefs that would want to stay in place. The reading of this manuscript changed all of that, and I have never been the same since I read the material. George went around the table and heard from everyone what they also thought, and it was decided by the group that this material would be put in a vault. Later, it was established that when George and Doris died that the material would go to me, and that would be responsible for its safekeeping during my lifetime. This decision would change the course of my life because the magnitude of the responsibility would require that I probably wouldn't marry and have earth children because I could not put them in such a position. Their lives would never be safe. Every relationship that I would have would go through such a scrutiny. This is what I have learned through these years of silence. When one takes a cosmic oath of this magnitude, then a safeguard system is set up through a system called the Keeper of the Keys. Several keys are to be given, but only one is designed to be the one to release the information at the appointed time. That time would be determined by those aboard the Star of Bethlehem and by 33 species of galactic intent. Computer readouts would determine this, and those readouts would take place through implants of the people and the planet. It was a gigantic screening procedure through certain readout days. Mostly these days would be called Pleiadian lineup, which would match November 17, 1819, or May 17, 1819, of any given year. However, because of escalation of technology and war on the planet, there has been additional days of monitoring, and these may start as soon as November 15th or May 15th, and last as long as several days after the 19th date. On the Pleiades, this is called the celebration of planet Earth, because we are their children, and they want to know how we're evolving. Think of it as their Super Bowl, with everyone around a TV set watching while partaking of their favorite beverage. This has been a tradition 
for thousands of years, especially since the destruction of Atlantis. The seeding, the watering, the fertilizing, and harvesting of a planet and its people have been ongoing from planet to planet through these evolutionary measures for eons of time. So sometime in late afternoon, George asked me if I would take a walk with him. He said that there were some things that he needed to discuss with me in private. I agreed and put on my walking shoes and hat, and we began to climb over the sand dunes on our way to Giant Rock. In about ten minutes, when we were out of view of the house, George started speaking to me in a very strange voice. I had never heard this voice before but it was one that I knew spoke with great authority, so I listened very intently. He told me that he and other beings, and ETs and spirit wall beings, had been watching me for years and had been part of a team to prepare me for some extensive work that would be forthcoming in the next 25 years. He said that I had been part of an ET experiment from the moment of my birth and that I was coated in my blood cells. He knew that I was born with a double pineal, and that I had been part of a hybrid experiment, and that I'd be exposed to other world realities so that I could journal them. He said I was coded in my blood, and that these codes would be released upon certain timings, and that I'd be monitored day and night for the rest of my life on planet Earth. He explained to me about ET technology and implants, but more than that, he explained about time travel and what that would mean in the future when people understood the reality of going forward and backwards in time. Another topic was walk-ins and how that particular experiment was allowed with humans and the beings that be in charge of such soul interchange. Remember, this was in 1977. No one had even mentioned walk-ins at that point, not even Ruth Montgomery or anyone. This was brand new information, and it was really hard for me to hear. When he would see that I had, was having difficulty absorbing this information, he would take his hands and put them over my eyes as though he were coating me with his hands. Then he would look at me in the eyes and stare for long periods to see whether it took or not. This went on for some time with each subject matter that he would tell me about. When he saw that I couldn't handle any more information, then we'd just walk in silence until I would speak. I asked a lot of questions and received more than enough answers. This went on for about three hours. When it came time for closure, he instructed me to take his hands, look into his eyes, and with a jolt that I will never forget, charge me up with so much light that I thought I was going to explode. He told me to go back to the house and wait for him and that he needed to be alone. He turned and walked toward Giant Rock and I practically floated back to the house. When I returned, everyone was still talking about the manuscript, but I was totally focused on the information that had just been given to me. I could tell that I had to sit alone with this, so I excused myself and went to the bedroom to rest. Several hours passed, and Doris came in and asked, Where was George? I told her that he said that he needed to be alone. She informed me that it was now 10 p.m. and that I had been back since dusk, 
I must have looked bewildered as though time had escaped me somehow. Everyone seemed to start being anxious about George, and a search party was convened to go out and find him. They looked for two hours, but no George. Finally, when everyone was exhausted from looking, a very peaceful George just walked up to the house and came in the door. A curious thing happened after that. He turned and winked at me and did the following. He went around and touched everyone and talked with them, and in seconds their entire perception of his absence was erased. I was the only one who was allowed to see this. This was part of my training, and I knew it. Another thing finally came over me. The George that left with me was not the George that came back. In other words, the procedures of walk-ins and how they happen, and now he was one. It was the final demonstration. This was a secret that I would have to keep for some time. In about a month, I got a call from Doris telling me to come at once, that George had just died of a heart attack in a motel. I was in Santa Monica at the time, so it was about three hours until I could get there. Doris told me that when his spirit left his body that the light bulb exploded and the table was split in half with a bright blue light. This did not surprise me. What did surprise me was when she confided in me that she felt like that she had been living, well, not with the same person ever since he came back from his walk that day, that someone else was there. She too had experienced another being in his body, and she told me that this being that left was only sent for a short period of time. She wanted me to record this, as she felt that I would know what to do with this material later. I took care of all the funeral arrangements for Doris, as she was in such a state that she could not think for herself with clarity. I don't remember much about this, as I was still processing the fact that George had left that day that we had taken the watch, and, and not the person that we were memorializing now at his service. It has now been 23 years since that eventful walk with George Van Tassel. I can truly say that if I had to mark a place in my life where I took a 180-degree turn, it'd be that walk in the sand dunes after reading the Wadi Scrolls. On July 1, 1991, Doris Van Tassel died. I received a phone call telling me that Doris had sold the pages of the manuscript for $10,000 a page. She had distributed them around the world to different people and had made it almost impossible to retrieve. This is the information I was told in 1991. I was devastated to hear this, as every decision I made was readying myself for the responsibility of this manuscript. I felt betrayed, I felt alone. My life went pretty much on hold after that, and not until the crack in the boulder at Giant Rock did I feel the need to write this down on paper. But something about the way that George told me that the rock would crack one day seemed to be the code or signal for me to finally release some of this information. Last year, in 1999, I went to visit someone who had been healed at Giant Rock by the ETs. I hadn't seen or heard from her in over 20 years. She had recently published a book about the Van Tassel's work 
and had reprinted a lot of George's former writings. One night, just before we were to retire, she brought a manuscript into my room. There sat a copy of the Wadi Scrolls. I was so stunned that I couldn't open them. They stayed unopened by me the entire stay. I had kept my part of the bargain and been betrayed. Now they were back, and I just wasn't. I knew that if I picked up the manuscript that I could never put it down, so I just never did. Everyone was dead now. Harvey, Doris, Jewish couple, Leo. All except me. No, thank you. I got the message, and it is still the same message that I gave George when he asked me what he should do with the manuscript. The world is still not ready, nor would it be ready for some time to come. Now here is the rest of the story that emerged in 2005. On my way to San Diego to catch a cruise ship for the Spiritual Cinema Circle, I stopped by to see this woman again, as I was now reconsidering looking at the scrolls again. Maybe I'd been too hasty with my decision. Perhaps now I could maintain a more balanced degree of sanity concerning what I had already experienced through the years concerning the Wadi Scrolls. I was aware now that other scrolls were coming forth, and I noticed that no one was ever killed for it, so maybe I was safe after all. The Da Vinci Code and other books had paved the road for this kind of spiritual revaluation, and I knew that I had some galactic codes that would take spiritual seekers on a galactic adventure that would shed some light on their already curious minds about the truth concerning Christianity. I wasn't sure how far I wanted to take this information, but at least I was willing to pick up the scrolls again and make this determination. Get yourself ready to fall off your tricycle for this next revelation. When I mentioned to my friend that I was ready to read the Wadi Scrolls, she looked puzzled and said, What Wadi Scrolls? I refreshed her memory of my visit some years back, and she did remember that I had been at her house, but she had no memory of any Wadi Scrolls being by my bedside. In fact, she remembered nothing about the Wadi Scrolls and asked me to tell her about them. <laughs> I was so stun gone that I couldn't speak, and since we hadn't had dinner yet, I encouraged us to go to a restaurant and continue our conversation there. I noticed that through dinner she was showing signs of dementia and that her memory was truly escaping her. But there was something about the way that she had been erased totally about the Wadi Scrolls that had me in a state of bewilderment. Had I missed the opportunity by simply refusing to pick up the scrolls again? Was I so terribly hurt and upset by past actions concerning the scrolls that I was paralyzed with regret to the point of complete denial? What had I done to myself and my commitment concerning the scrolls? I had missed the window. And now no one but me even had the memory of the history of how George had acquired the scrolls, Doris had sold them, I had turned my back on picking them up again, and now they were lost to me.
Now, as I'm getting ready to announce Part 1 of Crack Between the Worlds for the exclusive report on Starseed Radio Academy, I am confident that many Starseed, Walk-Ins, Lightworkers, Indigos, and Crystal Beings will be further activated as this story is broadcast and goes viral through the Internet. I trust that those listening to this story will honor the fact that these are my galactic experiences and will pass this on to others that may honor the source as well as the information. With that, I now close. Until next time, we meet in Galactic Sacred Space for Part 2 of Crack Between the Worlds Information as secrets from the vault are being released in timing with certain coded and planetary activations on the planet. The time of this recording is September 18th. 2010. Read by Lavendar. Wow. Yeah, I, I hear something different every time we listen to that. Uh, this is Ariel. And um, I want to thank Lavendar um, remotely once again for her work on the planet. And uh, she will be still in Arkansas for next week's show, so we are going to run um, another one of her stories from her journal for those that haven't heard, um, because those are in the archives like six years ago. So with that, I want to thank everyone for listening this evening, and from all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.